Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ora Ogunbiyi. And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Statistically, Basildon is the most median town in Britain. What does that even mean? Yeah, I wasn't sure either. So we took a trip to the Essex town to find out for ourselves. And for decades after moving to an Israeli kibbutz near the Gaza Strip, Vivian Silver sought the means for peace. The successes of her latest effort, our obituaries editor explains, came just days before she died at the hands of Hamas last month. First up, though. America's presidential election is now 354 days away. But indulge me in a little thought experiment that pollsters are fond of, about what would happen if the election were held today. Well, probably Donald Trump would win, as much as his rivals for the Republican nomination, such as Nikki Haley, insist otherwise. And we have to face the fact that Trump is the most disliked politician in America. We can't win a general election that way. Ah, but they could, though. See, a string of recent polls shows President Joe Biden trailing in the states that'll probably seal the result. Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Michigan, where Mr. Biden is appealing to working-class voters. Joe Biden said he'd stand up for workers, and he's delivering, passing laws that are increasing wages and creating good-paying jobs. Those voters are slipping away to the Republican side of the ledger, and minorities, too. On issue after issue, voters seem to favor Mr. Trump, immigration, the economy, the conflict in Gaza. Some or all of this could change in a year, of course, particularly once Mr. Trump gets more fully back in the election spotlight. The Biden campaign sure has to hope so. Well, this is certainly not where Joe Biden wanted to be one year away from Election Day. Idris Kaloun is our Washington bureau chief and a host of Checks and Balance, our weekly show on American politics. The president thought that given that Donald Trump is his likeliest opponent, that he might have had an easier time of it. But uh, voters are not in a particularly happy mood, despite his handling of the economy, which he thinks has been very good. Despite all the legislation that he's passed, Democrats are still losing black and Latino voters, which are going to be the key block for the Democratic base. So is this picture that you paint a a matter of Joe Biden's weaknesses, or is it about Donald Trump's seemingly unshakable strengths? 
a lot of it is about Donald Trump's seemingly unshakable strength. Democrats thought that after January 6th, the president was basically no longer eligible to be president. They thought that all of the court proceedings against him, the 91 criminal counts that he is currently contesting, would also make American voters realize how chaotic the Trump era was and they would turn away from him. But that doesn't appear to be the case. So on the one hand, that's going on. On the second, Joe Biden looks to be rather weak. He has approval ratings that are in line with Donald Trump when he was at this point of his presidency. Trump was, of course, one of the least popular presidents of the modern era. He's trailing Barack Obama in terms of approval rating at this point in his presidency, all of which suggests that the president is not getting the credit that the White House wishes that he would, and also that American voters are not remembering Donald Trump's foibles in the way that the White House hoped that they would as well. So we've been talking about polls in a general sense. What about specifically digging into the numbers? What is it? What are the issues that divide voters at this point? What is especially concerning to Democrats who are parsing these early poll results is that they show that on many issues that they think the White House ought to have an advantage, that American voters say that they trust Donald Trump over Joe Biden. That's true on the economy, where voters in swing states say that they favor him by a margin of 22 percentage points. It's not particularly close. They also favor him by nearly 10 points on immigration, which Democrats have tried to avoid talking about, but they thought that Trump's chaotic policies at the southern border might have made him do worse. And despite the Biden administration's handling of the Israeli conflict in Gaza, voters say that they would prefer him to be in charge of that conflict as well. And that's despite the president's um, other foreign policy goals, uh, his articulated views on Ukraine that the White House thinks are totally beyond the pale. Now, I suppose it should be said that polls are merely a snapshot in time. We are a year away, which is several geological ages and political terms. How much should we be trusting the numbers that we're talking about here? So you're exactly right. They're a snapshot of sentiment at the moment that suggests that he has some room to make up. But there will be a billion-dollar Democratic campaign whose entire purpose is to big up the president and to make Donald Trump seem chaotic and unpalatable. And one thing that I think is hard for people who follow the news very closely to understand is that for many Americans, Donald Trump has receded in American life. They know that he's been charged with crimes, but he's not on Twitter. He's not on cable news as much. The return of Donald Trump could have two effects. It could excite voters who are uh, happy for the return of their champion, or it could remind them about the chaos of his time in the White House and turn them off. We also are going to have these criminal trials that take place. Uh, They could result in a conviction of Donald Trump. And while the trials have not slowed him down at all in the Republican primary, in fact, they seem to have sped up his success there, general American voters, independents, et cetera, might take a different view to a successful conviction if it were to happen in the next few months. And what do Democrats, what does Joe Biden's team make of these polls? They have largely dismissed the polls. They pointed to the fact that the Democrats did fairly well in the off-year elections that were held on November 7th this year and show that that is an endorsement of Bidenomics and the president's policies. I think that a a deeper dive into those results would show that a lot of it is about the politics of abortion, which are still incredibly powerful, and some idiosyncratic factors in states like Kentucky, rather than a wholesale approval of Democrats. But it could be the case that the polling is inaccurate, and particularly inaccurate for some of the key Democratic constituencies like Black and Latino voters. The numbers that we've seen so far 
don't look particularly good for Joe Biden. So 42% of Latino voters in key swing states say that they would pick Donald Trump. And 22% of black voters in the same states said that they would go for Trump over Biden. Those are numbers that Democrats are not used to seeing. They would, if true, cement the general shift away from the Democrats that we've seen within the non-white working class that we really saw come into fruition in 2020 and 2022. If that continues and Democrats continue to lose voters there, that will make their election bid in 2024 much harder to accomplish. These polls are sort of a broad take across the nation, and ultimately American presidential elections always come down to a small handful of states, and I I presume that'll be the case again. Yes, that is definitely going to be the case, and will probably be the same battleground states that uh, the two had to contest in 2020. States like Arizona and Georgia, where Joe Biden shocked many by winning, but it also includes the blue wall states in the upper Midwest, like Wisconsin and Michigan, that Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump also shockingly in 2016. And at the moment, the poll results suggest that Joe Biden might be slightly ahead in Wisconsin, but that he trails in Michigan, which has more electoral votes and is a state that he was, I think, expecting to be able to carry. What this broadly shows, this remaking of the American electoral map, is a result of two trends. One is the Democrats' increased support among college-educated white voters. So in states that have boomed, like Arizona and Georgia, where suburbanites uh, with college degrees um, have increasingly moved Democratic, that has pushed those states into play for the party. And then in the industrial Midwest, what we're seeing is an opposite countervailing trend, which is working class voters shifting towards the Republican Party. That's been true of white working class voters ever since 2016. But what we've seen since the election in 2020 and 2022 is that there's also been a measurable shift in support towards the right for the non-white working class. Uh, You see this among Hispanics. Ron DeSantis, the governor in Florida, actually won Miami-Dade County. We saw that Hispanic voters along the border in Texas voted for Republicans by fairly large margins, uh, something that hadn't been done in over a century. And that is a realignment as members of these groups start to vote more in line with their culture, which is similar to the white working class, as opposed to along the lines of their race. And I guess that Mr. Biden won't necessarily enjoy the advantage that incumbent presidents often have when it comes to re-election bids. Americans tend to re-elect their presidents, and Joe Biden certainly hopes that that trend holds out for him. But given that he's already an octogenarian, Americans are concerned about how he looks and sounds. Those concerns will not dissipate in the next year, given that people always get older. And because of his age, there will be more attention than normal on the vice president, which means voters taking a good look at Kamala Harris, who has been in that job for four years and I think has been uninspiring. She has poll numbers that rival presidents, which in this case are not something to brag about. So given all of that, then, do you think Mr. Biden can turn it around? Yes, absolutely. There will be a very long campaign. Uh, Americans will have the joy of many, many dozens of campaign ads to look at. He will remind voters about the legislation that he's passed, infrastructure spending, gun control, big climate bill that he called the Inflation Reduction Act. He will remind voters of his handling of the war in Ukraine, of his handling of Israel's war with Hamas and hope to generate some enthusiasm and draw the contrast with Donald Trump's isolationism. And uh, inflation, which is the point that is hurting him the most, uh, has cooled a bit. Last results said that it was 3.2% comparing October of this year to October of last year. But American sentiment about the economy is not particularly great. And 
And at the same time, states continue to contest whether or not abortion will be legal. Um, in states where it looks like it might be outlawed, that tends to boost Democratic votes by a bit. And that will also be a factor in the next election as well. All in all, Joe Biden has a weak starting point for his re-election bid, but the best thing that he has going for him is that his likely opponent is Donald Trump. People have made up their mind, and he motivates both his supporters and his haters to come out to the polls, and that might just be enough to get Biden over the finish line. And Adris, I should point out here that uh, you'll be talking about this a lot more uh, this week with your fine co-hosts of Checks and Balance, uh, our show on American politics. Yes, that's right. Uh, we're going to expand on some of these points. And it's part of our new audio subscription service, Economist Podcast Plus, but it'll be free this week. It'll be out later today. I will, as ever, be tuning in. Great. Thank you so much, Jason. The next episode of The Weekend Intelligence is coming out, and it's a fascinating one. Our correspondent goes in search of a very particular house in the forests of Ukraine. Lake's house is just on my left. You can see it just poking out of the riverbank, and above it is a large blue and yellow Ukrainian flag. Oleg was a detainee in Russian-occupied Crimea, twice. On his second release, he didn't go home. He built himself a sort of cabin and lives the most extraordinarily isolated, precarious life. You can see a kind of wooden canopy propped up with wooden sticks. Um, very much homemade, but it looks incredible. It's the kind of place you could imagine people paying a, a lot of money to stay in, in a glamping trip. His story is one of dealing with the trauma of war that a great many Ukrainians today will still have to reckon with. Of course, you have to be a subscriber to listen, but you know how to sort that out, right? Get a 30-day subscription to Economist Podcasts Plus by clicking in the show notes. Do I look official? Yeah, first impressions, what do you think? This is actually quite a nice cinema complex, I think. Got a decent number of shops. It's deserted, though. There are lots of cars, but I cannot actually see many people at all. What's what's good about Basildon? What's good about it? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, we go over there sometimes to a bit of shopping, don't we? But everything's closing down over there. It's not the same as it was years ago. What was it like years ago? Quite nice, wasn't it? Everybody was friendly and the shopping centre was nice and everything. But they've shut Debenhams, all, everything over there now. And there's, I don't know, it's nice. I wouldn't want to live over there again. I'm trying to learn about Babbledon. Wouldn't bother, mate, it's a shithole. <laughs> Sorry, can I say that? People just don't take a lot of pride in themselves and there seems to be a low work ethic and, you know, that's just not the way forward. You know, if we all put in as a team, we'll all make a bit of place, but these lot seem to think that, fuck it, we'll just nick it off our neighbour. The thing about Basildon is... Basil's just really normal. Duncan Weldon writes about Britain for The Economist. If you find yourself standing in the centre of Basildon, as I did on a Monday afternoon, you could sort of be anywhere. Basildon is a town in Essex, a county of southern England, one of 
28 or so new towns created after the Second World War. And the idea of the new towns was to build complete towns with jobs, with housing. There were 28 of them built between the 1940s and the 1960s. Basildon was supposed to be a utopia. Lewis Silken in 1948, he was the um, Minister for Town and Country Planning. And Lewis Silken said about Basildon, Basildon will become a city in which people from all over the world will want to visit. It's fair to say when I went to Basildon, there's not much evidence of these tourists from around the world turning up. So when you say that Basildon's just normal, what exactly do you mean by this? We luck to try and find the most median place, the most typical place in Britain. And the way we did that was we looked at the data for 329 local authorities across England and Wales, across seven metrics, home ownership, house prices, median age, employment levels, average earnings, educational background, ethnic makeup. And we sort of got the data for the best part of 330 local authorities, looked at across these seven metrics, calculated the median. Basildon comes out just 0.1 percentage points away from the medium, which is about as close as you can get to the medium place. So there you go. Lo and behold, Basildon is the median British town. Duncan, what's the significance of finding a median town? There's a film called Magic Town starring James Stewart. Released at about the same time that Basildon was planned as a new town. No wonder he's going out of business, getting opinions from the public. That's a screwy way to make a living. Why, there's nothing screwy about it. In that film, James Stewart plays sort of a down-on-his-luck pollster who stumbles across a town in North America which has demographics which roughly match the rest of North America. And he realises, actually, I don't need to spend a fortune on doing polls across all of North America. I can just poll the people in this town. Basildon is as close to a magic town as we have in the UK, this little sort of encapsulation of Britain as a whole. In the 1980s and the 1990s, Basildon was seen as a national indicator. So between 1983 and 2010, when the parliamentary seat of Basildon was merged into its neighbours, the constituency always voted in the same way as the general public in a general election. So, so in the 80s and the 90s, particularly the late 80s, there's a lot of sort of political commentary in Britain on, you know, what does Basildon Man think? And it was always Basildon Man. The Tories say these were their best local results for 15 years. In places like the Essex barometer town Basildon, they took control of the council building on their general election victory here. It's nothing new for Basildon to be seen as the demographic exemplar, the demographic centre of Britain. And is Basildon still a good political indicator of the country? Well, having spent some time in Basildon, Basildon man and Basildon woman, if you ask them about politics, I think much like the typical Britain, isn't following the twists and turns of Westminster that closely. I mean, the most common answer you get is about bin collection. Oh, I'm not going to lie, the parking around here is awful. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, my rent is ridiculous. My, I, have to pay for, I have to pay too much for parking where I live. The first thing I want to tell you about Basildon, that if you try and go into the main shopping centre, it's a major issue. 
twice I had to pay fines because I tried to get to the parking and you can't read the Okay, signs. so it's not that useful as a political indicator anymore, but how about as an economic one? Yeah, I mean, I think as an economic indicator, Basildon is again quite typical. I mean, if, you, if you're standing in the centre of Basildon, if you're spending the day in the middle of Basildon, what you are seeing is an awful lot of vacant shop fronts. An awful lot. Some of them have been vacant for a long time. But I think what we've learned over the last few years is over the course of the pandemic and afterwards, your typical Britain isn't spending that much money on the high street anymore. You know, high streets are no longer the best indicators of prosperity. If you, as I did, go just a few kilometres north to the leisure park, then what you were seeing was a roaring trade at the bowling alley, at the mini golf, at the soft play at the cinema, at all of the different bars and restaurants. So, yeah, I mean, I think Basildon is not just typical demographically, not just typical politically, but actually not a bad encapsulation of sort of economically where Britain is, where people are spending their money. And what you will also find, as the people of Basildon were really keen to tell me, is only the second five guys in all of Essex. And I'm going to tell you what, on a Monday afternoon, slightly rainy day, getting yourself a really good burger in the middle of Essex, yeah, sort of made my day. Duncan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, sure. I genuinely think they're bigger burgers than they are in London. I said the exact same thing. I did. I always put the same stuff, so I'm kind of shocked, but... What's your order? Cheeseburger. Yep. Tomato, lettuce, pickles, good onions. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Vivian Silva often thought that truth came out of the mouths of babes. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. And it seemed to be so in the case of her two sons, who had formed rather an attachment to some Palestinian workers who had been building homes on their kibbutz. They liked Nassar and they wondered why, after the Second Intifada, he didn't come to work anymore. Their mother said it's because there's a big war going on between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And one of her sons asked, what is it about? She said, it's about land. So he went away and being just a little boy, he got a bucket, he filled it with earth and he brought it back because in Hebrew, earth and land are the same word. So here he was with his bucket of earth and he said, please give this to Nasser so that he will come back. Vivian Silver wished that life could always be as simple as that, that the solutions could be as easy. She wanted to be neighbours and friends with the Palestinians who were just over the border. Her kibbutz, called Bayeri, 
was only four and a half kilometers from the border. And she knew that on the other side, there were women like herself, mothers, who wanted nothing more than to bring up their children happy, healthy, and in peace. But she herself had endured several wars since she had been at the kibbutz. In the war of 2009, she'd been out walking in the fields when suddenly bombs started falling all around her. In 2014, which was the worst war of all, there were 50 days of killing, maiming, bombing. In 2018, there were kite bombs that came across and completely destroyed the local nature reserves and places where she liked to go out hiking. She couldn't understand why people went on fighting. It had been proved again and again that war did not bring peace. And she had to find some way to try to bring people to their senses. This began to obsess her. She hadn't always been sure that she would be a peace activist. She was brought up in Canada, born in Winnipeg, and then all her interest and passion was with women's rights and with the start of the Jewish feminist movement. But she had her junior year at college at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and this made her much more aware of her Jewish roots, and she decided she would like to move back to Israel. In 1974, she went there and became important in her first and her second kibbutz. She became secretary of her first kibbutz, which was actually the chief decision-maker one of the rare times a woman was given that role. She started up a good number of joint schemes with Palestinians, including one that favoured cultural projects. She also became executive director of the Negev Institute for Strategies of Peace and Development, which was rather a mouthful, but it was an extraordinarily effective organisation at getting joint projects going in time. A Palestinian also joined her, so they were joint directors there and very good friends. She went to Gaza quite a bit in the late 1990s, spent much time there and made a good many friends. Things only got difficult when, after the Second Intifada, Hamas took over in Gaza and in 2007 closed the border. She found that the Friday night telephone calls she'd organized so that her neighbors on the kibbutz could talk to people in Gaza had to stop. She found she couldn't get her Palestinian workers over anymore, but in order that they wouldn't lose out completely, she would take money to the border to pay them. She also found she had to go to the border to find the sick Palestinians, generally cancer sufferers, whom she used to drive up to hospitals in Jerusalem. So in all these little ways, she was still struggling to help the people of Gaza as much as she could. She decided that rather than relying on the men who ran the government, she ought to invoke woman power. She still had all her feminist instincts from her earlier life. So she began to build up, indeed she co-founded, a movement called Women Wage Peace. And there was a Palestinian arm to this too, which was called Women of the Sun. And these two 
organized protests and rallies and marches in order to try to make their respective governments stop resorting to war and instead sit down and talk together around a table. The most recent rally that she had organized was a huge one that started at the Bethlehem checkpoint, went through the streets of Jerusalem, and then ended up at the Dead Sea. But only three days after this great rally came the attacks of October the 7th. No one knew for quite a time whether she had been killed or taken hostage, but it has just been affirmed that she had been killed there and her house was certainly gutted by fire. Her son Jonathan was asked what his mother would have thought of the terrible atrocities of October the 7th. And he said on an interview with MSNBC that she would have seen it as the result of not striving hard enough for peace. My community is wiped out. It's, it's incomprehensible. It's just very vicious, viciously done. That's the point. That's the point. The only way to be safe is to have peace. It's a cycle. We're going to wipe out Gaza now. Kids would grow up. In 50 years, it will happen again. Anne Rowe on Vivian Silver, who's died aged 74. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jack Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. Our senior producers are Rory Galloway and Sarah Larniuk. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Kevin Kaners and Maggie Kadifa, and our assistant producer is Henrietta McFarlane, with extra production help this week from Emily Elias, Peter Granitz, and Benji Guy. We'll see you back here tomorrow for our weekend edition. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.